Please continue to stand and take out your Bibles. We'll be reading from 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 16. This is the word of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comfort us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that you earnest on your behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if anything, I have boasted to him about you. I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again before we look to his word this morning. Lord God, we pray that by the presence of your Holy Spirit, you would bless your people with your word, that you would empower me helpless man to declare your truth with power, with clarity, for your glory and the good of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The theme that overwhelms this passage, if you noticed, is joy. Paul keeps talking about joy and comfort that has come to him through the Corinthians. The words joy and rejoice show up six times in this text. The words comfort and comforted appear seven times. So what is it about the Corinthians that gives Paul such joy and comfort? I mean, what have they done? I mean, is it all the ways that they've blessed him? That they've made his life so pleasant? <laughs> is it all the help they've given him in his life and ministry? All the great support? How they've served him? Perhaps it's their commendable obedience to Christ? None of those things. So what is it? He tells us in verse 9 that it's their repentance. 
Martin Luther's first point in his 95 Theses Against the Pope and the Corrupt Apostate Catholic Church reads as follows. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther then proceeds to develop the idea of repentance as the Christian's inner struggle. That is, his inner struggle, her inner struggle with sin, rather than a mere external system of sacramental confession before a priest. Luther knew that our lives were to be characterized by repentance before the living God. That it was to be as much a pattern of our lives um, as is breathing. Repentance. So what then is meant by repentance? Well, it's the idea of godly sorrow, which Paul talks about here in verses 9 through 11. Godly sorrow. Paul lays out for us in those verses that when we sin, we're faced with two paths. Only two. One is worldly sorrow, that is a a kind of grief over our failure, where we fall into despair and hopelessness, worldly sorrow, feeling bad about yourself is not necessarily um, a sign of, of spiritual life or spiritual health. A sign of spiritual life and health is what's referred to as godly sorrow. Sorrow according to the will of God, writes the apostle, which is rooted in a love for Christ. Godly sorrow rooted in a love for Christ that leads to a hatred of sin itself, um, a combination that produces repentance and demonstrates salvation in one's life. It's the turning away from our sin, not just once, (laughs) But again and again and again. Can I get a witness from my brothers and sisters this morning? Again and again and again. That's my life. And that repentance is what puts on display the fact that one has salvation in Christ, which leads to joy of new life, and of comfort. Repentance, as one writer puts it, is taking God's side in a case against ourselves. (laughs) Acknowledging that, that our sin is an offense against the Lord, to recognize that and wanting to change my mind about that. to where I want to live differently in that area, the result of which, as we see in the text, is joy. Joy and and comfort. Now, the thing that gave the Apostle Paul such joy and comfort in his relationship with the Corinthians of all people is their willingness to repent. That's what we see in this text. And repentance, as we're shown here in 1 Corinthians 7, produces three things, okay? Three things in our text. The first is reconciliation between believers, only because you have a reconciliation with God. Secondly, is a confidence that we actually belong to Christ. And thirdly, it provides comfort to the body of Christ. Reconciliation confidence that we belong to Christ, and comfort to the body of Christ. We first see reconciliation, or we see restoration, um, that repentance brings between believers. Now, Paul here urges the believers in Corinth in verses 2 and 3 with pastoral affection not to listen to the false teachers who had slithered into the church there trying to assassinate Paul's character, false apostles, those whom Paul sarcastically refers to in the latter chapters of this letter as super apostles. 
Some in the church had been seduced by them and even believed the false gospel being preached by them, these super apostles. So Paul makes an appeal for the full affections of the Corinthian believers there on the basis of his past conduct and instruction. Look at it there in verse 2. Make room for us in your heart. We've wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. It's pastoral affection. Paul did not want in any way to be estranged from his brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's a terrible way to live, by the way. Amen? He doesn't condemn them, notice, but he he cultivates this hope for repentance, following the footsteps of Christ. Verse 4, my confidence in you is great. My boasting on your behalf is great. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts on the outside. Fears on the inside. Trouble without. Fear within. Despite all the frustrations... And in the midst of such affliction, he was filled with comfort and overflowing with joy. The reason was the safe arrival of Titus into Macedonia. Verse 6, who came with encouraging news, beloved. Titus brought good news about Corinth. That is, most of the church had repented. turning away from the false apostles and their phony gospel towards Christ and his true apostle. Now, to understand this text most fully, as is always the case, context is key. Amen? Context is key. So I need you to turn back to chapter 2. need to build a bridge here, okay? In chapter 2, when Paul explained why he changed his plans to visit the Corinthians a second time on his way back from Macedonia, okay, now remember, this was after he wrote 1 Corinthians. He wrote them 1 Corinthians, he visited them, and he promised to visit them again, but he did not. On his first visit, which is referred to as his painful visit, okay, so... After he writes 1 Corinthians, he visits them. It's a painful visit because he was forced to confront a man in the congregation who was a ringleader of sorts for mutiny against the apostle Paul as he followed the false apostles. And apparently when Paul arrived, this individual attacked him face to face, and once he left, he continued the attack. And the Corinthians did nothing about it. You remember that when we were back there? Eventually, the man repented, and then the Corinthians wouldn't receive him. (laughs) Paul said, receive him with open arms. You remember that? Okay, so look at chapter 1, verse 23. The reason he didn't come the second time, look, it was to spare you that I might refrain from coming again to Corinth. It was to spare you. Chapter 2, verse 1, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. In response, rather than coming again, he sends a letter to the Corinthians in the hand of Titus known as the severe letter, also referred to as his tearful letter, chapter 2, verse 4. A letter that is lost to us, it's not part of divine inspiration, is a letter to them nonetheless. Nonetheless, calling the Corinthians to repentance, he sends it in the hand of Titus. Look at verse 12, chapter 2. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel, 
the gospel of Christ and a door was open for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Not finding Titus, my brother, but saying goodbye to them, I went on to Macedonia. Okay, now Paul and Titus were supposed to meet up in Troas. Titus is a no-show. Paul is worried sick. He's troubled. Okay, now remember, Paul has to send Titus, and he has to wait for, for Titus to get to the Corinthians, spend time with the Corinthians, and then return to him to know how they respond to his letter. Children, in this day, there were no cell phones, there were no text messages, there weren't even what we know is common everyday household phones. None of that communication came into effect until just recently, actually. You would write a letter and you'd have to wait. And he had to travel quite a way. So, you know, all that to say, we take instant communication for granted, do we not? So, from chapter 2, verse 14, through chapter 7 and verse 1, Paul goes on a massive aside here, referred to as Paul's glorious digression. Now, we've been studying this over the months. We've been studying his glorious digression over these past few months, and that is to defend his apostolic ministry as a minister of the new covenant, which has much more glory than the old. The old came with great glory, but it faded away. The new outshines it. It's finished in Christ Jesus. I'm a minister of the new covenant. He defends that from chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to chapter 7. And here now in verses 5 through 9, Paul picks up where he left off in chapter 2 and verse 13 after that glorious digression. Are you with me? Are you with me? (laughs) So until Titus arrived, he was depressed about the whole situation. Verse 5, he faced conflict all around him. Okay, That's one thing that's going on along with the anxiety of heart not knowing the whereabouts of my brother Titus. But God. But God, verse 6, who comforts the discouraged. And oh, let me tell you, I was discouraged, says the Apostle Paul. Comforted us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted among you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Isn't it great? So add to the excitement of seeing Titus. Imagine to hear the words from Titus. Paul, I have good news for you. The Corinthians have turned. They've repented. Good good so good they've repented see the idea here with regard to reconciliation before brothers this has to do with the pain of broken relationships those that are spiritual those relationships that are in christ you grieve not only because the 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 relationship has been breached because the person has wandered off into sin So the implications are even greater. The pain is deeper for the apostle. They're in blatant disobedience, and that pains me, says Paul. Because it puts them in a position of suffering the consequences of iniquity. The chastening hand of God, that intensifies the pain of the apostle. So Paul worked from out of that pain, out of this affliction, to cultivate repentance in these people by way of a letter, painful letter, severe letter, tearful letter, whatever you want to call it. Verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, For I see that the letter caused you sorrow. 
though but for a while. So here's a, re- a letter written with tough love. It caused them grief. Not many of us like to be confronted with who we really are. Anybody? Do you? No. It spurns our flesh. And it's not that every assessment is always accurate. That's all right. No doubt. But when God's word shows us, this is what my word demands, and you have deviated, it's painful. It hurts. There's grief. That's all out of the love of conviction. Not condemnation, conviction. So as their spiritual father, the apostle Paul, his first reaction when he wrote the letter, he sends it off, what was to regret what he had written because he was so stern. But sometime later, reflecting on the entire episode, realized it produced sincere repentance. So I grieved that it was, I was so stern only for a short season. Like a loving father who disciplines his son or his daughter. You may have to be stern, but it's out of love. He's their spiritual father. Verse 9, I now rejoice. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. That's not what I was after, but that you were made sorrowful to the pain and point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. That is godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Look, I rejoice not merely because I brought you to grief as a father. My my intention wasn't merely to damage you or to hurt you. Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Friends, there is no regret in godly repentance. It may be difficult to grow through, to be faced with my sin, but there's no regret in repentance. If anyone does regret it, it was not true repentance, period. Paul wrote with the hope of restoring these people. That's what he tells us to do. He tells the Galatians to do, which applies to us in Galatians chapter 6, right? He writes this, Galatians 6 verse 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, all the while looking unto yourselves, so that you too will not be what? Tempted. Now, it's not always easy to do to confront someone, but it's necessary in order to restore them. What's the purpose of church discipline? You've heard it a thousand times. The purpose of church discipline, even when we name someone from this pulpit who's in uh, a regular unrepentant sin, they're unwilling to repent, we don't name them from here right away, but after a season of unrepentance, we do name them if they're a member here with the sake and hope of restoration. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Why is that? Because our sin always looks worse on another. Always. Parents, can I get a witness? You see your sin in your children, and it always looks worse on them than it does you. This this was David's problem. King David, he went upward of a year or more without repenting, that is, with his sin, his sin with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband, Uriah. You remember the account? Nathan comes to him, Nathan, prophet, comes to David, and he speaks to him by way of a parable. David, there were two men in the same city, one wealthy one poor. 
The wealthy man had many flocks and many herds. The poor man, he had one little ewe lamb. That ewe lamb grew up with the family, with the children. It used to drink from his cup. It was like a household pet. A traveler comes into town to visit the rich man. And the rich man, rather than taking from his flocks and his herds to prepare a meal for the man, he goes and takes the little ewe lamb from the poor man. David responds, the man shall die. Before he dies, he shall repay fourfold. Nathan responds, David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord. When he sees his sin for what it is, he runs to the Lord with godly what? Sorrow, and he pens Psalm 51, from which we read this morning. David says, Lord God, against you and only you, I have sinned and done this evil thing in your sight. That, my friends, is the work of the Holy Spirit in the man producing that repentance. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Against you and you alone I have sinned. Now, David realized that he had sinned against Bathsheba, his own family, his own wife. He sinned against Uriah. He, 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 he plotted his murder in battle. Tried to erase the situation. He, he sinned against Israel as their representative king. But at the end of the day, he knew that that's all secondary stuff. I've sinned against you, my Lord. That's godly sorrow. His concern is God. The sorrow is godly. Repentance as moved by the Holy Spirit is to turn away from our sin and towards God, godly sorrow. So at the root of godly sorrow over sin is hate for sin and a love for God, or to put it another way, it's love for God that leads to a hate of sin, the core of which is godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Now, while godly sorrow, notice, produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, reconciliation with God, that's vertical, reconciliation with your brothers and sisters, that's horizontal, verse 10b, but the sorrow of the world produces death. That's worldly sorrow. The sorrow of getting caught, the sorrow of being exposed. All that it's costing me thinking nothing of God. A classic example of worldly sorrow in the Bible would be Esau. Esau. Having exchanged his birthright for a bowl of stew after he'd been out hunting all day, he comes in hungry. He tells his brother, I don't give a rip about my inheritance. Go ahead and have the blessing. Give me the soup. Once he realized his loss, Genesis 27, we read that he wept bitter tears of deep emotional sorrow. The New Testament talks about it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. When he, Esau, listen to this now, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. It's a dangerous place to be. Though he sought for it with tears. Commentator Paul Barnett is helpful here. And he says, and I quote, The implication is that if godly grief produces repentance, then worldly grief produces unrepentance. There's a world of people out there who were raised in the church. They never came to faith and trusted Jesus Christ. They're growing embittered day by day. 
My wife showed me something that appeared on uh, Facebook, someone we know um, who was raised in the truth, walked away from the Lord, and, and, and cried out with this, what do I do with my anger? And then he gets all kinds of foolish answers from the world. Answer? Repent, fool, before the living God. Godly grief, godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without what? Regret. Worldly sorrow produces unrepentance that leads to death with regret, Esau. Unrepentance may feel grief. Unrepentance will feel grief, but it does not return, turn away from its sin and turn towards God. You may be sorry about all kinds of things. Perhaps I'm no longer held in high esteem by others. That's my sorrow. Their sorrow is a killer. What, what does this sorrow produce? Worldly sorrow produces guilt, shame, despair, depression, self-pity, anguish, resentment, and bitterness. Worldly sorrow. Wounded pride of unfulfilled hopes. Now, the extreme comparison in the Bible between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is, of course, Judas and Peter. Judas was so sorry he had betrayed Christ, he went out and hanged himself. He committed suicide. He took the 30 pieces of silver back to the Pharisees, threw it on the temple floor. He went out grieving, sorrowful, killed himself. Satan wants people to live in excessive sorrow. That's what he wants. To the point to where there's no relief. He loves it when people look to themselves and not to Christ for relief. Loves it. Guilt is his number one deadliest weapon. Guilt. Unresolved guilt. If we reject the gospel, the only way you can be relieved of guilt, the one who took it upon himself, if we reject the gospel, we'll never be moved towards godly sorrow because we'll never be moved towards gratitude toward God. It's just a constant look at self. We'll either become a self-righteous Pharisee looking down on everyone else, or we will despair of Christianity altogether. Worldly sorrow. In contrast to Judas, Peter. Peter, who denied our Lord Jesus Christ three times in one night. But his sorrow was not worldly sorrow. His sorrow did not cause him to go out and hang himself because his sorrow was godly sorrow that makes you weep and ask for forgiveness to the only one who can provide it. Because at the center of godly sorrow, beloved, at the center of godly sorrow is God. At the center of worldly sorrow is self. Upset with myself that I've done such a stupid thing, but we're not thinking about God. We're like Esau. We're like Judas. Barnett also said this, Worldly sorrow is, and I quote, the sphere in which life is lived without God and in opposition to God. You know, when there's worldly sorrow, and I've heard this many times in my life in ministry, worldly sorrow will lead some people to consider, look at the mess I've made of my life. Perhaps I'll try Christianity. Let me give it a shot. Let me start going to church for a while, see what happens, see how it will help, help me. No consideration for God. 
That's not sorrow of the godly sort. That's sorrow that leads to death. It's worldly. Worldly sorrow, it's refusal to repent with, with, with reasons of sorrow for self is evidence of unbelief. The Corinthians responded with godly grief, most of them. Most of them. Sobering, isn't it? Humbling. And stirs in us thankfulness. It should. So when we experience godly sorrow for our sin, we repent, which is the evidence of salvation. Right here. We experience forgiveness, we experience new life, resurrection life, death life. And then new life brings forth joy. That's his joy. He's full of joy, he's joyful. So we regret our sin, not with godly grief. We don't regret the, the fact that we had godly sorrow because godly grief led us to Christ, his cross, salvation in Christ, and the joy of resurrection life. That's the picture being painted here. Repentance that's vertical also now operates horizontally between the Corinthians and God's true apostle, Paul, being slandered by false apostles. So, from reconciliation that repentance produces, we just looked at, Paul now moves to show the fruit of that repentance, which creates confidence, that is reassurance of the fact that I do belong to Christ. Godly sorrow drove me to repent, sorrowful before God. God is at the center of godly sorrow that provides confidence. I am in Christ. <laughs> Verse 11, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment of wrong in everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Fruit. So although the letter had pained them, their, their eventual positive response proved themselves, that is to be innocent, that is their godly sorrow quite simply proved their faith as being genuine. We all stumble and fall, right, man? We all fall in the mud. Spiritually speaking, we all fall in the mud, but a righteous man gets up what? Again, seven times and seven is the number of perfection. By faith. Back to the cross. You run to the cross. You run to the living Christ who bore your sin upon the cross. Faith proved as genuine. Verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended. The one offended was Paul, remember. I didn't do this merely because I was hurt. No. But that your earnestness in our behalf might be made known to you in the, in the sight of God. Now, you can imagine Titus was probably apprehensive to show up in Corinth. How often is the messenger shot for giving the message? Amen? He might have went with a little bit of trepidation, you know. They respond, they respond rightly, and Titus is beside himself with joy. Again, it's the fruit of belonging to Christ. Repentance produces reconciliation between believers. That's what we see here, a confidence that we belong to Christ. We also see that, and now it, produ it produces comfort to the body of Christ. How joyful when one is restored to fellowship, right? As I said, we, we've named in 15 years from the pulpit's Seven people by name who refused to repent. We also renamed and restored three publicly. Amen? That's the goal. That's the goal. So it provides comfort to the body because we've regained the brother. 
Verse 13, because of this, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. He's the one that came with the letter. He came back rejoicing. He was comforted. We're comforted. Reporting this news, I'm joyful, says the apostle. Comfort throughout the house. Verse 14. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. As much trouble as the Corinthians gave Paul, he talked them up (laughs) to Titus. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Godly sorrow made manifest that reality. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you all. Amazing. Titus loves you more now than ever. And I know that when, when, when he arrived, uh, you, you, you feared and you trembled. Can you imagine the Corinthians? Here's Titus, and he has a letter from Paul. Now it's going to be read publicly. And they're like this. Oh, my goodness. That was the severe letter. Not 2 Corinthians. That was the tearful, severe letter. So Paul gushes about how proud he is of them in verse 14. Nevertheless, beloved... Understand this, Paul knew very well that our spiritual lives and the lives of those that we love, the lives of those that we pour into, all we can do is plant and water. We have no power to bring forth harvest. Paul was well aware of that, and he described that fact back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We water, we plant, and we water, only God can bring forth the harvest. We plant, we water, and we hope. Paul wrote the letter, and he he was hopeful. Friends, you will not grow repentance in your child. You will not grow repentance in a wayward friend. You will not grow repentance in someone you're ministering to, to unbelieving neighbors. You can plant, you can water, but only God can grow repentance in their hearts. That's why we say, therefore, don't change the message. Right? We, we, we studied a few weeks ago, the aroma of the gospel is a stench to some and so pleasing to others. You can't control the scent, whether it's a stench or whether it's pleasing, so don't mess with it. Just present it. Only God can bring about repentance. So that's what Paul did. And here's the fruit. Paul's confidence was not in himself. Wasn't in the Corinthians either. His confidence was in God. The one he knew was at work. The one in whom he trusted. Because it's God who initiates, amen? We open the service with these words. 1 John 4.10, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.19, we love only because he first loved us. You can't love God unless he initiates the relationship. It's impossible. Therefore, he provides the repentance. Now, speaking of Peter again, when the Lord restored him, after his horrendous denial, Jesus asked him on the shore of Galilee, Peter, you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you you love me? Lord, you know I love you. He's frustrated. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. Yes, I love you. A couple whacks after that by the Lord. Was there? 
No. He said, then feed my sheep. The reason you love me is because I initiated this relationship. I sought you out, Peter. You failed me. I forgive you. It's paid for. It's done. I told you in the upper room. I don't need to wash your whole body. You just need a foot washing. You've already been cleansed. Remember when he said, wash my whole body then? No. Done. For the one who gave his life is a ransom for many. is the one who came to seek and to save. Peter's one who's been sought out, found, and saved. Therefore, forgiven. That's what produced the godly sorrow in the man. His hopes were dashed. Because his hopes of a Messiah were something other than the Messiah. Paul's relationship with the Corinthians like his Lord, cost him a lot. Reflecting the Lord cost him a lot. To lead and to feed them, he had to chase them. He had to chase them. He had to suffer for them. He had to embrace them when, when they hurt him. And in doing so, he preached the gospel of reconciliation to them. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to me. Come on, the problem's on your side. Have me in your heart, he says. Paul could persuade the Corinthians because he, he could persuade them by pursuing them because he remembered the one who pursued him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sought him out and he found him on the road to Damascus. Paul could endure with their stubbornness and their um, sinfulness because he remembered the one who patiently endured his sinfulness and his stubbornness. The one Jesus said, Paul, you're kicking against the goads. Why do it? You're only hurting yourself. A goad was on the front of an ox cart. It was a sharp a sharp instrument so that when oxen would kick back, they'd hit the goads and hurt themselves and stop kicking. Paul kept kicking against the Lord. But he remembered the one who granted him grace and repentance. So he calls the foolish Corinthians to repent because he once himself was foolish and kicked against the goads. You see Christ in this man's ministry? Godly sorrow leading to godly sorrow to more godly sorrow. So to close, when we sin, we're faced with two paths. One, worldly sorrow, which is rooted in selfishness and leads to denial, self-protection, inaction, and death. Esau, Judas. The other is godly sorrow, rooted in reciprocated love for the Lord O oh Lord, against you and you alone I have sinned, said David. Reciprocated love, which leads to repentance unto salvation and therefore comfort and joy. John Kelvin said, repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. It is. It doesn't stop until we enter into glory. So we see in this text the beauty of repentance, the beauty of restoration, not just between Paul and the Corinthians, but between the Corinthians and Christ by way of Paul's aid with the hope of restoration, producing joy and comfort as we've seen throughout, and confidence, confidence that Corinthians, this is evidence that you do belong to Christ. Godly sorrow. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, produces godly sorrow in those that are his, who bore all our sins, having died for us on the cross 
that we might not experience, friends, the grief that leads to death. And he rose again from the dead so that instead we will experience salvation and the joy that comes with it. It's the glory of the gospel on display once again in this letter to the Corinthians. So there is no regret, beloved, in godly sorrow. It may be painful, but there's no regret. The process can hurt. So though your sins may be great, if you're here this morning and you may be filled with so much shame as a believer that you find it hard that the Lord would ever take you back, think again. May this truth produce godly sorrow in you so that you come running to him and allow him to embrace you back into fellowship because your union cannot be destroyed. Communion can be wrecked, but union cannot be. So restore your communion with godly sorrow and be sure that he embraces you as he did on the first day, the first time you repented unto saving faith. And if you're not, if, if you're not in Christ, Perhaps you think that you're too far gone that he could ever receive you in the first place. Think again. He died for those sins. And he was raised to justify any and all who come to him by faith. So come today. I bid you to come. Rest in Christ and be saved. Because, as David cried out, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. In a broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. Amen? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Be restored. Be saved. His grace abounds. Father, we do thank you for that. As my brother said, your mercies are new every morning. Great, great is thy faithfulness. Lord, instill this glorious truth into the hearts of your people. Bring to life any who are here, who may be here, who are not in the faith, those who may be listening. Lord, let this serve to minister to their soul and grant them godly sorrow leading to salvation along with the joy and comfort that it alone provides. Only found in Christ, your Son, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.